0: Yeah, it's very unlikely that seeing your average pile of stones will cause you to stop and to think. In fact, most of the time when you drive past a pile of stones on the freeway, perhaps it catches your attention for a moment in the periphery of your vision. And yet, as you drive down the road, it fades away and trails off to thoughts of other things about life. Sometimes a pile of stones will capture your attention and cause you to think. I remember one such experience. It was when I was driving through New York City, and I was driving past the place where the former World Trade Center stood. And I, I, I remember looking at the enormous piles of stone that were still there after the remains of 9-11. And I remember instantly as I saw that pile of stones, I began to reflect and to think. In fact, upon seeing the enormity of the site and the massive piles of stone, the very first thing that I remembered is where I was standing on September 11th. I remember standing in front of the television set, and I remember looking at this plane flying through the air, the plane that was headed for the second tower. All I knew is that there was reports of America under attack, and as I was watching the television set, I stood in utter disbelief. It was almost as if it was surreal, watching this plane navigate its way through the scrapers of New York City. Seeing that pile of stones reminded me of, of people jumping out of the, uh, the the floors of the Trade Center building to their death. Uh, seeing the pile of stones reminded me of the 9/11 tapes, the 911 tapes that were played, uh, recording messages of loved ones calling their friends. And family, telling them they were to perish in the flame, and saying goodbye. All of those uh, memories and many more rushed into uh, my uh, my perception immediately as I saw those piles of so stone. I began to reflect and to think. They spoke without speaking. And as we come to chapter seven here, we see another pile of stones that that speaks without speaking, really. Here in the valley of Achor, God set up a massive pile of stones that would be a perpetual memorial of his wrath. And you remember that this is not the first pile of stones in the book of Joshua that speaks. If you go back to chapter 4, you have another very large pile of stones which were set up as a memorial to divine grace. You remember that as, as God led Jor- the, the people of Israel across the Jordan on dry land, he told them to pick up stones and to bring them across to the other side of the Jordan and to set them up as a perpetual memorial throughout all the generations of Israel that when their sons and daughters walked by those stones, the people of Israel would tell the story of the grace of their God who led them into the possession of the promised land that this pile of stones here at the end of Joshua chapter 7, it doesn't speak about grace. And not yet anyway. This pile of stones in the valley of Achor speaks about God to be sure. And it speaks about the wrath of God. For the second week in a row as we're examining the book of Joshua, you'll notice that the message from the chapter is about wrath. In chapter 6, we said that the storming and the crumbling and the defeat at Jericho was about an exclamation point in history, the time and the space of the wrath of God. It was a symbol of God's wrath upon those who refused to repent. We tied that to the presence of the divine warrior. We demonstrated it from the totality of the scriptures, particularly Revelation chapter nineteen eleven, when Jesus Christ comes back in, in judgment It will be a day in which all of the nations will mourn and weep, and they will suffer the consequences due to their sin. Joshua chapter 6 was about wrath, and now Joshua chapter 7 again is about wrath, the wrath of God, but this time, not the wrath of God against the sins of an unbelieving world. This time, the wrath of God towards covenant-breaking people. Notice here uh, the evidence of God's wrath, first of all. We see the evidence of God's wrath in verse 2. And the the way this episode is structured is quite interesting because in verse 1 you get a snapshot of the problem. But it's interesting as you look at the rest of the chapter, uh, at least up until the middle of the chapter, uh, Joshua and God's people don't have the information that you are given in verse 1. So really what you need to do is put your shoes Put yourself into the shoes of God's people in verse 2, and, and Israel is headed out to battle against Ai. It's the next town that they have to take. And uh, Israel sends out some spies from Jericho, what we're told, and, and just in and the way that's described there, there's a note of triumphalism, isn't there? Because without firing a shot, basically, Israel uh, destroyed its enemies in Jericho. And you can only imagine the kind of confidence that that victory built among the people of God when when they merely shouted and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And it would appear that they took all of Jericho without any loss of life among Israelite soldiers. And so they're headed off to Ai. These spies are already confident and believing in the power of the Lord to to help them conquer their enemies. And so they go spy out the land of Ai and the city of Ai, and then the spies come back and they report that it's a small town and it's not very imposing, and all that will be needed is about two or 3,000 soldiers to defeat this city. Well, you know the story. Israel goes to Ai. It sends out its ten to 12,000 troops, and we're told in the word of God that 36 men died in the attack, but worse than that... Israel had to signal retreat and was chased all the way back to its camp. And the response of Joshua here is really fascinating because uh, where do you find Joshua in verse 6 but bowed down before the ark, his face in the ground, his, his clothes torn and dust on his head? And he is complaining before the Lord. And and this complaint that is recorded here in the Word of God sounds so familiar to other complaints in the Scriptures when Israel complains to God. Notice what Joshua says here. Alas, O Lord, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver them into the hands of the emirates to destroy us? You see, Joshua is complaining, and Joshua is complaining because he believed that, that God had promised that he would go... Uh, with his people Israel. You go back to chapter 1 and God had come to Joshua and he would sent him on this mission. He said, hey, take this people up, go over the Jordan and conquer your enemies. And I will be with you wherever you go. And Joshua responded in obedience. He, he got up, he led him across the Jordan. He led him in victory over Jericho and he led him to Ai to defeat. And Joshua is stunned. It was a humiliating loss, because two different times here in the text, uh, you'll note that the retreat is described, that the men of Ai not only struck them down, but they chased them down like a junkyard dog chases down somebody who intrudes into the property. Joshua complains, and he laments, and he says unto the Lord, not only... Uh, will the Amorites destroy us. But then he goes on in verse 9 to say, All the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They will surround us. And they will cut off your name from the earth. Joshua saw in this one defeat the glimmer of hope that the rest of the nation, the rest of the, the surrounding cities of Canaanites would have, and he said, "They're all going to band together, and they're all going to strike us with the sword, and they're going to stomp us out, and they're going to cut off the name of the Lord from all the earth." And the fact that Joshua is so um, so committed to this view, he is he believes that this spells doom for Israel so much that he ends his prayer by saying to God, "What will you do for your name?" Joshua realized that this was a catastrophic defeat he realized it spelled doom for Israel and victory for all of his enemies he says to the Lord your reputation is on the line and God comes to him and he straightens Joshua out beginning in verse 10 notice what he says here the first thing he says to Joshua is get up Get up. He doesn't sympathize with Joshua. He doesn't pat him on the back. He, he, he's really rather stern in how he handles Joshua. He says, get up. Get up, Israel has sinned, and he goes through a litany of violations in verse 11. And the way the structure of the text reads, it's as if God is a prosecutor in a courtroom, and he's giving point by point by point by point the infractions which Israel has committed. He says they have sinned, they have transgressed by covenant, they have taken things of the ban, they have stolen, they have deceived, and they have put them among their own things. That's what really seems to have angered God. Not only do they take things from the ban, but he says, they have taken them and put them under or among their own things. They have claimed what was the Lord's for themselves. And he says, because of that, you cannot stand before your enemies. I will not be with you anymore. The defeated Ai is the evidence of God's wrath. Now he gives us the basis of the wrath. Second of all, Achan had stolen what was under the ban. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 18, you notice there what was under the ban. And we talked about this at some length uh, last week, describing the principles of holy warfare. And and we noticed here that that what you have is really a parenthesis around a very dramatic event. We said in, in verse 16... Uh, The writer puts you in the shoes of the warriors of Israel right before the walls fall. And he says, uh, now that they've walked around this city seven times on the seventh day and the trumpets have blown, uh, Joshua commands the troops finally to break noise discipline and to shout. And then we said uh, what we would expect is to see the walls crumbling down, but in fact what you get now is a long pause. And we said that this is probably... uh, relating an incident prior to the battle. But, but Joshua gives specific instructions to Israel here. He says that the city is under ban. Everybody's to be killed except for Rahab. And then he goes on to describe what's under ban. He says, but as for you, keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban. And he says, all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze And iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Well, you come back to chapter 7, and you see that that's exactly uh, the command of holy war that they broke, because God says they have taken things that were under the ban. And then we're told uh, about Achan's sin here in great detail in verse 21. You might look there for a minute here. Joshua now has Achan's attention after he's attempted to suppress the truth and to hide it and to cover it up and to conceal it and engage in deception. He's finally been caught, and here's how he describes uh, the things that he took. He said, I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar. And, and what that means is it's a very, very expensive robe from Babylon. A very, very high-quality A well-made robe. But he saw it and, and he wanted that. And then what he saw was 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold. Both of those things, by the way, that Joshua had said are explicitly under ban. And they are, in fact, if they're to be found, are to be given to the treasury of the Lord. And so, Achan set his heart upon those and coveted them and took Explicitly what God had forbidden them to take. And so God poured out his wrath in Israel and caused them to go down to defeat. Before we get into the third phase of this narrative this morning, which is the actual outpouring of divine wrath, and explaining why those stones are there, verse 26. The wise stop for a moment and look at the sin, actually. There's a whole series of, of, of things here that we need to learn from the sin of Achan as by way of application for ourselves, and I believe the very first thing that we should learn from this passage is, is sin's predictability. A sin is, is ruthlessly mechanical and predictable. Notice how it was that Achan uh, falls here and disobeys the command of the Lord and gets himself and all of Israel in such trouble with God, he says, uh, reporting on his activity, first of all, I saw. I saw. It seems as if what what Achan did was in that moment when he discovered this treasure, this jackpot, it's as if his eyes became fixed upon these items. It wasn't simply that they were in the periphery. It wasn't simply that... that uh, He took note of their presence there. He fixed his eyes upon things that he knew were sinful. And then second of all, we're told in the word of God that he coveted them. He coveted them. In other words, his heart was given to them. And then thirdly, he took. And you know, that process of sin, that very mechanical process of sin is exactly how the Word of God tells us in the New Testament, the book of James, that's how sin always happens. James says in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away, when he's enticed by his own lust, and then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James says this is how sin always occurs. Very fascinating how it unfolds in the context of James 2 because uh, there is prior to this verse a statement that God does not tempt any man to sin. In other words, there was somebody who James was addressing who was a perfectly orthodox believer in some ways who believed that God was sovereign over all events and basically that believer was saying that the reason why they sin is because God and his sovereignty set up obstacles and temptations and led them into sin. And James says that's not at all how sin works. He says here's how sin works. We are tempted when we are carried away and enticed by lust. And this is exactly what happened to Achan. He was enticed not because of God's command. He was enticed not because God's sovereignty over the situation put him right before those uh, obstacles and those articles of gold and silver and clothing. He was enticed because he coveted what God said was not his. That's where sin always begins, with lust. Our setting, our hearts on things that God said no to. And notice how powerful lust is. He says it carries. You better be careful about allowing lust and covetousness to have a foothold in your heart. Because as soon as it does, James says, it conceives and it gives birth to sin. You know, had Achan merely stopped, paused, saw, and coveted, and walked away, Israel would have won that day at Ai. But see, what happened was he gave covetousness a foothold in his heart, and it he gave birth to sin, and then he took. People of God, you need to be aware of the things that your heart craves. You need to be aware of the things that your heart craves because there is going to come a time when you will not be able to suppress that anymore. And when you can't overcome that and overpower that craving, it will conceive and it will give birth to sin. And I believe, however, that Achan's problem began far before this incident when uh, the gold and the silver and the fine clothes are set forth before him because Achan's heart, no doubt, for a long period of time had been a heart that coveted material goods. And I argue that because of verse 24. You may say that sounds strange, but, but look at verse 24. So Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the sons of Zerah the silver the mantle the bar his sons his daughters his oxen his donkeys and sheep and his tent. The Calvin makes the uh, the very interesting and perceptive observation here that this man did not lack the goods of this world. In fact, the fact that he had oxen, donkeys, and sheep along with sons and daughters, indicates to us that this is a man who was very wealthy. This was a man that had the goods of this world already. He was blessed with material possessions beyond what he needed. You see, this coveting here wasn't just simply a random act of covetousness. This man had allowed his heart to become consumed with material goods, with money, and with the trappings of prosperity and success. And the fact that he did not need these things, and the fact that he is a wealthy man is indicated in what he did with these things when he took them. He says in verse 21, behold, they are concealed in the earth in my tent. If he had stolen the silver and the gold because he needed to pay his credit card bills, he wouldn't have buried the gold and the silver in his tent. He didn't steal out of poverty. He stole out of covetousness and out of love for material possessions and for more and more and more and more wealth. And not only did he bury them, signaling he didn't need them, he concealed the entire episode tells us again that sin had overwhelmed Achan's heart, not just in a moment of time, but that he had a heart that progressively over time had grown very insensitive to his sin. You think about that. When he is standing before those items, he knows, he's just heard Joshua say, when you see it, don't covet and don't take. You know, at the moment when he stands before the gold and the silver and the fine clothes, that his conscience must have pricked him and said, don't do it. And you know that when Israel went down to Ai and he didn't go, but when he heard of it when he was sitting in this tent that the people of Israel uh, had lost in the battle to Ai, you know at that moment that Achan knew he had done wrong, and yet he refused to repent. And you know that when Joshua gives the command to all of Israel in verse fourteen to consecrate themselves because the Lord is going to meet them, you know that his conscience tricked him again, and he knew he had done wrong and he had violated the command of the Lord, and yet he refused to repent. And you know when he's standing out there on that field on that morning in verse sixteen with all of the families of Israel, and as God walked by each tribe and they separated off, and that they were excused, it was narrowed down to the tribe of Judah, and then it was narrowed down family by family by family, every single time a new tribe and a new family walked off that field that day, Achan knew he had sinned. And yet, what did he do? He refused to repent. You know, people of God, this is is such a frightening episode for us, because this is not simply a random picture of a very bad guy. This is you. This is you. This is us. Sin has this very deceptive way of promising us that it's good for us. Sin has this very deceptive way of promising us that it will be fulfilling. A sin has this way of promising us that that not only will it be fulfilling, but there will be no consequences to it when we do it. After all, when Achan took the good, did he die? Did a lightning bolt from heaven strike him dead? No, other people around Israel were dying and dropping like flies and being humiliated. But Achan was okay. He still had his gold buried in his tent. You know, sometimes we don't immediately reap the consequences of our sin, and we think, well, God must not be looking, or God must not care. Sin deceives. Sin deceived Achan, and he continued to cover his sin. I don't know. What sin you're covering this morning, but I would warn you this morning to be very wary of the sin that you bury. Be very wary and scared and alarmed of the sins that you bury. Be very afraid of those sins that you have in secret that nobody else knows about. Be very aware of the sin that you bury and you guard and you keep secret to yourself and, and periodically you return to and think about and cherish and, and get energized yeah, the picture here of Achan is rather pathetic because this man stole these goods. He knew that he had violated the command of the Lord. He dropped them on the surface of his tent. And you can only imagine what this guy did in the middle of the night when everybody else was sleeping in his tent. As he lit his candle and he walked to the place in the tent where he had buried his goods. And he uncovered uh, the goods and the silver and the clothing. And he lifted them up and he set them out across the floor. And he looked at the gold and the silver that glistened of the light. And he worshipped these material possessions and He found in them something that made him feel alive. Those things made him feel like God. Those secret sins that he had made him feel alive and powerful and meaningful. And then he wrapped them up, covered them over, and walked out of his tent and blessed the Lord with his mouth. I want to warn you this morning. You better be careful of the sins that you're hiding in your heart. I want you to go away from here this morning and think about the sins that you hold in secret and you don't tell anybody else about. Because I want you to know that there will come a day when those sins will be so overwhelming to you that you will finally be exposed. You see, those things that we cherish in secret, those sins that we guard, those sins that we cover up, and those sins that we keep going back to, when we think nobody else is looking, become like a raw nerve, and Satan will continually return to those and rub them raw till finally, at one point, we will be exposed for the hypocrites that we are. Now hopefully you're all better than that. But just kind of knowing how people are, just kind of knowing my own heart, I kind of think that just about everybody here has some sins that they're hiding and secretly returning to. And I'm just warning you, you better confess those, repent of them, and turn from them because you think you can cover your sin. But if you are truly a child of God, He will not allow you to hide forever. Now I know as I warn you, there will be some who will not listen. For those who are listening, I plead with you in all sincerity Watch out for the sins that you hide in secret. Notice finally here the punishment of sin. Verse 25. This is a very unsavory episode, really. Uh, God had to punish the sin. He says, I won't be with you anymore, Joshua, verse 12, unless you destroy the things under ban in your midst. He told Joshua how to figure out who the culprit was. We've already seen that it's Achan. And yet notice what he does here in verse 24. It says, Achan, the son of Zerah, uh, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons and his daughters. All of his possession, oxen, donkeys, sheep, tent, everything that belonged to him, they brought to the valley of Acor, And here's everything that Joshua has now standing in the middle of this valley. And Joshua, the first words out of his mouth to this poor exposed sinner is, Achan, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you. The beginning of Achan's punishment is not when he feels the stones pelting his flesh. The beginning of Achan's punishment is the servant of the Lord coming to Achan and making him conscious of his sin. You've troubled us, Achan and then telling him of the fearful judgment that's to come. You know, when people sin scandalously, and they bring harm to the church and the people of God, there is a time when they need to be rebuked severely, so that they understand the trouble that they bring not only upon themselves and their family, but to everybody who names the name of Christ. God will not let that go. God will expose that and God will rebuke it and he will allow the sinner to feel the sting. And that's exactly what Joshua does. Calvin commenting on this, says, the invective seems excessively harsh as if it had been his intention to drive this wretched man into frantic madness. That was the intention. So that Achan would feel the sting of his sin. Remember now, this guy had been hiding his sins over and over and over and returning to those cherished sins. God had to get through to this man before he took his last breath. Repent. But the rest of this is very unsavory as well. It said the Lord will trouble you this day and Israel stoned. Achan? No them. His sons, his daughters, his wife, his family, his oxen, donkeys, and sheep, everything was stoned to death. Not just was it stoned to death, it was next burned with fire. And all that you see here is indicative of the punishment recorded in Deuteronomy 13 for gross scandalous, idolatrous sin. God told Israel that whenever they found real, extreme, idolatrous, blasphemous sins, that not only would they kill the people involved and everyone they contaminated, but that they would burn them with fire and leave all of their possessions a rubble so that people would learn that sin is dangerous. But that's not the end of God's judgment and punishment. You see in verse 26, the final note. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. The Lord turned from the fierceness of his wrath. Therefore, the name of this place has been called the Valley of Achor, which in the Hebrew means trouble. You see, that pile of stones was there to tell the people of God, throughout all generations, that sin brings trouble. Sin brings trouble upon yourself. Sin brings trouble upon others. Sin brings trouble upon the church. And when that happens, God brings trouble to you. And that's where we wind down this morning with some applications. First of all, And I know we've already talked about sin a lot. In fact, it's been quite uncomfortable. But we're going to talk about sin some more. We are to be warned by notorious examples of sin. Ursine commenting on, on why the law should be preached to Christians says this. He says, On account of the weakness and corruption of the flesh... It is useful and necessary even to Christians that the threatenings of the law and the examples of punishment be set before them to keep them in the faithful discharge of their duty. It's necessary, he argues, that the law and its threats be be proclaimed. The law and stories in the law here of people uh, being severely punished for this. It's necessary for the people of God to hear that. Not so that they'll point at people and say, oh, what an idiot, what a moron. He utterly blew it. No, the point of that is so that we would be warned not to allow sin to become entrenched in our heart. And if you know anything about sin, if you know anything about lust, If you know anything about covetousness, you know that it fairly easily roots in your heart. If you are struggling with that this morning, the example of the extreme punishment of Achan is an example to you. of The consequences of sin, and it teaches you to fear the Lord and to depart from evil. Secondly, we learn from this narrative of Achan's sin and then its subsequent punishment that sin brings harm. Scandalous sin brings harm not only to yourself but to the church. You know, Achan's sin here led to the death of 36 people, the humiliating defeat at Ai where the people of God were chased back to their tents like a dog chases an intruder. And they were shamed and humiliated, and it put them, as a nation, at great risk for defeat before all of their enemies. Achan's one sin affected the whole church. Because that's the way God has structured his church. His church is not a loose affiliation of individuals. His church is a covenant body of people. We are structured in a covenantal bond together so that when I sin, my sins have ramifications for you. If they're scandalous and unrepented of. Aiken's an example. You say, well, Pastor Sautel, that's Old Testament stuff, right? That's what God did back in the day. But in the New Testament, that doesn't happen that way. Well, that's not true because 1 Corinthians 11.30 says, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That is, you've died. Paul is speaking here to the Corinthian church, and he is explaining that the reason why there are people who are becoming sick within the church at Corinth and some even dying is because of their gross violation of the Lord's Supper. Because of their violating it by uh, involving themselves in pagan idolatrous worship, their sins were affecting the whole body of Christ. That's why the Catechism warns that not everyone may approach the table of the Lord. It says the table must be must be guarded. Because when unrepentant sinners partake of the table, they not only profane the sacrament, they provoke the wrath of God against the whole congregation. Aren't you glad we fence the table here? Aren't you glad we fence the table? Because the scandalous, unrepented of sins of other people bring the wrath of God down upon the rest of the congregation. You know, this has been a very uncomfortable message. It was very uncomfortable to think about it all week, too. I'm a sinner. I understand how sin works and affects the heart. Leads to blindness and deception. Greater hardness. It's a tough message, but we need them sometimes to shake us out of our laziness and our spiritual blindness and our misplaced affections. Something that I found in this passage made me really thankful. It was about Friday afternoon when I decided to do a little phrase search on Valley of Acor. And you know what I found out was that there is one other place in Scripture where the Valley of Achor is used again, and that's Hosea chapter two, verse fifteen. It's fascinating how it comes into the context because. Uh, you come to verse 14 of this prophecy, and you find the word therefore, and you, you naturally believe, when you come across the word therefore, that based upon the series of things that came before it, a conclusion is now to follow, which is consistent with what just came before. And what comes before verse 14? What comes before that word therefore is... Threats from the Lord. I will strip her, that is Israel. I will strip her naked and expose her. I will have no compassion on her children. I will take back my grain at harvest time. I will destroy her vines. I will punish her for the days of her bales. And then verse 14 says, Therefore, and what are you expecting in verse 14? But the hammer of divine justice to swing with fury and to crush Israel. But that's not what happens. Verse 14 goes on to say, Behold, I will allure her, that is Israel. I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak kindly to her. And I will give her vineyards from there. And I will give her the valley of Achor as a door of hope. God in his grace takes this valley of Achor, this place of judgment, this place of a rather distasteful episode of pouring out his wrath upon Achan and his family, this place of to symbol of divine judgment, that pile of stones which speaks to the fury of God's wrath against his covenant people when they refuse to repent of their scandalous sin, that place which terrifies us all morning long here as we've been studying Joshua 7. And now God says to rebellious, impenitent Israel, I will give to you the valley of Achor as an open door. In other words, what God is saying is He's going to come down to Israel in the midst of their sins and in His grace. He's going to open up a door of repentance for them. He's going to reverse sin's consequences. He's going to take the stubborn, sinful, corrupt people of God. And he's going to open up a door of hope to them. And in his grace, forgive them of their sins. To establish them in the covenant. And grant them a renewed relationship. By his grace, God does that. If sin is bothering you this morning, One of two options will occur. One, you will pretend that your sin is really not that bad and say that Pastor Sautel just woke up today, decided to terrorize us all, and I'm going to ignore it. Or, you have another option. You can repent. Repent. you can take this promise of God that he transforms the valley of Achor which was a symbol of divine wrath and judgment into a, play, a meeting place where God in his grace picks you up and brushes you off and washes away your sins and receives you back to himself through Jesus. See that valley of Acor has two sides to that rock pile. One side is law and now by God's grace, the other's gospel. If you're caught up in sin this morning, the promise of God's word here. Through the prophet Hosea about the valley of Achor is that God will forgive you if you repent. You don't have to hide your sin anymore. You know, I don't believe that every pile of stones is full of significance. They don't always have to be paused at and evaluated and reflected upon. But what they might do is remind you of this pile of stones. There is a pile of stones in the valley of Achor that does have significance. It does have significance to this day. Because to this day, that pile of stones in the valley of Achor tells you that if you don't repent of your sin, and you are claiming to be a child of God, the judgment awaits you. If you're resting securely in Christ this morning and you're trusting in Him and you're seeking to fight your sin and to flee your sin, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and to find it washed in Jesus' blood, that pile of stone speaks to you today too. It tells you that it was God in His grace who turned your valley of Acor from judgment into a valley of grace through Jesus Christ. You think of that pile of stones. When you see another pile of stones, I hope you remember that what you have in the Lord and the relationship with Him is all based upon His grace. It's all based upon His forgiving our sins and treating us with compassion. And I hope that makes you smile. And I hope that makes you rejoice. Thank God for this pile of stones. Let's pray.